Welcome to Everything Yesterday This Morning, a 15 to 20 minute daily recap of headlines you may have missed. Come for the news, stay for the snarky commentary. Good morning and welcome to Friday's edition of Everything Yesterday This Morning. I am your host, literally Heather. Let's fucking go! It is Friday, fam. I'm so pumped to bring this episode to your ears this morning. The news has been absolutely insane the last couple days, and I think they're just trying to make up for a slow weekend. Uh, But just FYI for you guys, that means this show is going to be long. I will do my best to cover the highlights today. We can go more in depth with everything that has taken place this week on Liberty Happy Hour this evening, including the Tucker Putin interview. I do want to watch that one myself before I discuss it, rather than going off of uh, obviously what the media has published on it. So um, I'm going to watch that today. We will likely be starting early this evening for Liberty Happy Hour due to the fact that I'm traveling early Saturday morning. Uh, And one more housekeeping item, we will be wrapping up the Anti-Federalist Papers next Wednesday Starting a new fiction book on Wednesday the 21st, we will be reading Michael Crichton's book, Prey, uh, P-R-E-Y, and I'd love for you guys to join in with us on that one. Uh, We'll be reading the first 60 pages and discussing those that night, so go ahead and go pick it up. Join us. Join the discussion. Uh, Your Palmetto State Armory deal of the day is a Blem 5.56 AR-15 rifle for only $499.99. You'll need to snag some sights, but this is a fully assembled gun other than that. It's got a lightweight M-Lock free float rail and PSA's classic carbine stock. That link is in the show description. Go check that out. Guys, Valentine's Day is coming up. You got to get your lady something. Ladies, you got to get your guys something. I am just here to help the people. Um. Okay. <laughs> The Supreme Court of Hawaii has ruled that a man can be prosecuted for carrying a gun in public without a permit in the state, overturning a lower court ruling that concluded this would violate his rights under the Second Amendment. Christopher Wilson was charged with keeping a firearm in an improper place and keeping ammunition in an improper place after being arrested on December 7th of 2017. He was found in possession of a handgun that had been loaded with a 10-round magazine, which he insisted was for self-defense, without a permit as required by state law. Wilson's legal team moved to dismiss the charges, arguing they violated the Second Amendment in the context of New York v. Bruin. This motion was granted by Hawaii's Circuit Court of the Second Circuit, though this was appealed by the state, taking the the case to the state Supreme Court. In their appeal, Hawaii authorities argued Wilson did not bother to apply for a carry license and thus didn't fulfill the necessary legal requirements under the state's licensed open carry law. The state Supreme Court concluded we reject Wilson's constitutional challenges, conventional interpretive modalities, and Hawaii's historical tradition of firearm regulation rule out an individual's right to keep and bear arms under the Hawaii Constitution. 
In Hawaii, there is no state constitutional right to carry a firearm in the public. So in a post-New York v. Bruin world, I feel like I'm living in an alternate reality reading this. But Hawaii's court ignores all of that in favor of, instead, quoting HBO's TV show The Wire. Literally, you guys, it's in the opinion. The court also cites foreign laws, Hawaii's laws when it was still an independent kingdom, none of which have any bearing on the state's current laws or its obligations under the Constitution. In fact, the Hawaii Supreme Court essentially declares the entire Constitution null and void in their state, writing, quote, As the world turns, it makes no sense for society to pledge allegiance to the founding era's culture, realities, laws, and understandings of the Constitution. The thing about the old days, they the old days. And the wire is actually cited there. I fucking, no bullshit, I kid you not. Uh, Hawaii's audacious disregard for the Bruin decision sets a concerning precedent akin to deciding that wearing socks with sandals is suddenly fashionable. It's a slippery slope. Today, it's ignoring the Supreme Court on the Second Amendment. Tomorrow, what's next? Declaring that spam is the only legal form of meat? The logic behind Hawaii's stance could be compared to trying to surf without a board. Bold, defiant, and ultimately doomed to fail. It's a classic tale of state versus federal powers, a high-stakes game of chicken where the stakes are as high as Mauna Kea and just as Rocky. I would make the argument that it's about more than just gun rights. It's about the fundamental principle of individual liberty. Ignoring such precedents isn't just a snub to the Supreme Court. It's a dive into uncharted waters that could erode the very foundation of the United States legal framework. Expanding on the legal peril and potential consequences of Hawaii's defiance of the Supreme Court ruling, Hawaii's decision to thumb its nose at the Supreme Court's directive dives into murky waters, potentially setting up a showdown that could have far-reaching implications. Number one, direct conflict with federal law. At the heart of Hawaii's defiance is a direct challenge to federal authority, the Supremacy Clause of the U.S. Constitution, Article 6, Clause 2, establishes that the Constitution, federal laws made pursuant to it, and treaties made under its authority constitute the supreme law of the land. By refusing to adhere to a Supreme Court decision, Hawaii risks violating this fundamental principle, inviting legal challenges that could escalate to the same court they're attempting to sidestep. Hawaii's stance is almost a beacon for litigation, attracting lawsuits from individuals and advocacy groups claiming that their rights are being infringed upon, which they are. These legal battles are not only costly in terms of financial resources, but also in time and attention that they divert from other state matters. Moreover, the outcomes of such lawsuits could further entrench entrench the state in legal quagmires if the courts rule against it. It sets a dangerous precedent. By picking and choosing which federal rules to comply with, Hawaii sets a press, I'm sorry, rulings, not rules, federal rulings to comply with, Hawaii sets a precarious precedent that could embolden other states 
to follow suit on this or other issues. This fragmentation could lead to a patchwork of state laws directly opposing federal law, complicating governance, undermining national unity, mind you. Coming off of uh, reading the Anti-Federalist Papers, I I don't mind the idea of an anti-federalist state. Get rid of the federal government, fine. We'll treat ourselves like our own little countries, whatever. But that rule has to apply to everyone. And you still have, I mean, those are inalienable rights. That's not just, I mean, those are God-given rights. That, That piece of paper doesn't give those people the right to do that. It places a restriction on you as the government to take that away from them. Um, Perhaps we'll get to the point where, like I said, federal government loses all its power. We have a bunch of little countries managing their shit on their own. Uh, There are potential consequences beyond the legal arena as well. Number one, federal funding, and that supports states. Those states often rely on significant amounts of federal funding, Hawaii being one of them and support for various programs and initiatives. By openly defying the Supreme Court, Hawaii risks not just legal repercussions, but also potential punitive measures, including the withholding of federal funds, which could impact everything from infrastructure projects to social services. Two, public safety and welfare. While Hawaii's intentions may be rooted in concerns for public safety, the defiance would ironically lead to less safety and more confusion. Only the law-abiding citizens would comply, and even law enforcement would have nearly an impossible time of enforcing it. Additionally, there's an economic impact. Legal battles and political standoffs would have unintended economic consequences. Investors, businesses wary of the instability and unpredictability such defiance such defiance suggests, they might think twice about investing or expanding in Hawaii. This hesitation could hamper economic growth, job creation, innovation in the state. Finally, Hawaii's actions could strain relationships with other states, especially if its defiance encourages similar behavior that affects interstate agreements, compacts, or collaborations. Such tensions could undermine collective efforts on issues of mutual interest, from environmental protection to economic development, the legal battles and confusion resulting from Hawaii's defiance could have a chilling effect on the exercise of the Second Amendment rights within the state. Concerned about the potential for legal repercussions, citizens might choose not to exercise their right to bear arms, even for legitimate self-defense purposes. That chilling effect will undermine the practical availability of constitutional rights, affecting not just the right to bear arms, but potentially chilling the exercise of other rights due to fear of legal consequences. Hawaii's approach to the Bruin decision could set a precedent for how other constitutional rights are treated within the state. If the defiance of this ruling is tolerated or upheld, it could embolden future actions that restrict or reinterpret other rights in ways that diverge from the Supreme Court rulings or federal constitutional constitutional protections. They could just look at you and say, "Mm, you no longer have the right to free speech. 
This slippery slope could lead to a gradual erosion of individual liberties on a broader scale. Hawaii's defiance of the Bruin decision not only challenges the federal legal framework, but also significantly impacts the individual liberties and rights of their citizens. The consequences of such a stance extend well beyond the legal sphere affecting the everyday lives of people in Hawaii, placing them at the intersection of constitutional rights and state policy decisions. The resolution of this conflict will be crucial in determining the balance between state sovereignty and individual rights in the United States moving forward. Um, In other firearms-related news, the Virginia State Senate recently passed three bills that could bring some changes, big changes, for gun owners in the Commonwealth. It's a long-standing controversy in the Commonwealth, the right to bear arms versus the need to stop mass shootings and gun crimes. That's also a conversation at the center of a debate on the Senate floor this 2024 session. On Wednesday, in a 21 to 19 vote, lawmakers passed Senate Bill 2, which would create a Class 1 misdemeanor for anyone who imports, sells, manufactures, purchases, possesses, transports, or transfers an assault firearm. This is punishing people who believe they have a Second Amendment right to own firearms, said Republican Senator Mark Peake. It is our obligation to make sure we don't have weapons of war on our streets, Democratic Senator Saddam Saleem countered. The framers of the Constitution intended for the citizenry to be armed in a manner that allows them to effectively defend themselves, not just against personal threats, but also against an external invasion or internal tyranny. The historical context of the American Revolution, where citizen militias played a crucial role in achieving independence from British rule, is cited as evidence that the founders envisioned a populace capable of bearing arms comparable to those used by the government's military to secure a free state. Perhaps the most philosophically profound argument is the notion of armed citizens serving as a deterrent against tyranny. This viewpoint suggests that a government is less likely to infringe upon the rights and freedoms of its populace if the citizenry possesses the means to resist oppression effectively. The balance of power in this case hinges on the population's ability to organize and defend its rights with arms on par with those of a potential oppressor, be it a domestic or foreign entity. This argument reflects a deeply ingrained belief in the importance of safeguarding liberty through the potential for resistance, a concept that echoes the sentiments leading up to the American Revolution. The sad part? They know all of this and are moving forward with it anyway. Senator Cray Deeds, the chief patron of SB2, responded saying, quote, There will always be criminals that don't care about laws. What this bill will do is reduce the number of firearms that are introduced to our streets, and by doing what we will, keep guns, these firearms, out of the hands of people that intend to do evil with them. Evil is awfully subjective, sir. Senate Bill 99 also deals with assault-style weapons. This bill would make it illegal to open-carry semi-automatic firearms 
in a public place. When they see these things in public, they're worried it's going to be the next mass shooting. The only reason to carry one of these things around in public is not for self-defense. It's to protect your home. It's to scare people, said Senator Scott Suravel. It is our God-given right to protect ourselves, our family, and our children. It's a constitutional right, Senator McGuire responded. Well, thank goodness one of you has some sense. SB 99 passed on Tuesday, and as I said, a 21 to 19 vote. Finally, Senate Bill 57 would make it illegal to carry any type of firearm into a restaurant that serves alcohol, regardless of a concealed carry permit, regardless of whether or not you consumed the alcohol. SB 57 also passed Tuesday 20 to 18. All three bills now move to the Democrat-controlled House of Representatives or House of Delegates. If they pass, they move to Greg, uh, Governor Youngkin's desk. And I hope he ties that shit to a football and puns it to the moon in a glorious veto. In my head, I'm just screaming, shall not be infringed, shall not be infringed. Like, it's not that fucking hard to understand. Oh, it came out of the blue. The White House announced that Joe Biden would deliver remarks at 7.45 p.m., giving the press only 23 minutes to prepare. Sudden speech would, would this be about? No one knew. As it happened, many White House correspondents were actually at a meeting near the Watergate building about a mile and a half away. A bunch of uh, reporters hopped in a car, raced across town, sprinted up Pennsylvania Avenue, greeted Secret Service, and and were let in. Uh, perhaps the press were about to witness history. Was Biden set to announce peace in the Middle East or Ukraine? Was this his bin Laden moment? A military strike that killed a top terrorist leader? Or, after a devastating Justice Department report said his memory is shot due to old age, was he about to do a Lyndon B. Johnson and announce that he's not seeking re-election? Reporters, TV crews gathered in the diplomatic reception room, which is the site of Franklin Roosevelt's radio addresses known as the Fireside Chats. Above the fireplace was a portrait of George Washington, a thick, hardback book bearing the names of recent past presidents. The posh, old-fashioned room comes with panoramic French wallpaper. I don't give a shit about any of this. Uh, he was, um, said Biden merged, and he did not resign from his position. Uh, he was actually in a really bad mood. <laughs> He was responding, obviously, to the special counsel's report, welcoming its conclusion that no charges would be brought against him for mishandling classified information. But the president was also very combative and emotional, and then, not for the first time, took one question too many and paid the price. So Robert Herr... Uh, described the 81-year-old Democrat's memory as hazy, fuzzy, faulty, poor, having significant limitations. There's even a reference that I don't remember. He paused for a moment. So he's reading this to them. He paused for a moment and swallowed as if the words are still hard to say when my son died. 
Bo Biden died of cancer in 2015. With barely concealed anger, the president continued, how in the hell dare he raise that? Frankly, when I was asked that question, I thought to myself, it wasn't any of their damn business. Some of you have commented. I wear, since the day he died, every single day, the rosary he got from Our Lady of, he reached in his pocket, showed the rosary, appeared to be choking up. Every Memorial Day, we hold a service remembering him, attended by friends, family, the people who loved him. I don't need anyone. I don't need anyone to remind me when he passed away. Peter Ducey uh, noted that the special counsel called Biden a well-meaning elderly elderly man and with a poor memory. The president parried, I'm well-meaning and I'm elderly and I know what the hell I'm doing. I've been president and I put this country back on its feet. Ducey pressed harder. How bad is your memory and can you continue as president? Biden said, my memory is so bad, I still let you speak. Touche. <laughs> I love Peter Ducey, but that was a pretty good burn. Um, another reporter weighed in, do you think your memory has gotten worse, Mr. President? Biden answered, my memory is fine. Take a look at what I've done since I've become president. None of you thought I could pass any of the things I got passed. How did that happen? I guess I just forgot what was going on. But soon, things started to go off the rails. From a raucous cacophony of reporters' voices, one emerged to ask Mr. President for months. When you were asked about your age, you would respond with the words, watch me. Well, many American people have been watching and they have expressed concerns about your age. Biden got mad again. That's your judgment, he said, his voice raising as he pointed out an accusing finger. That's your judgment. That's not the judgment of the press. Presumably, he meant to say the public. Biden went on to insist, I'm the most qualified person in this country to be president of the United States and finish the job I started. More questions, more frenetic noise, more grumpy expressions and finger pointing from Biden. I did not share classified information, he almost shouted. Let me answer your question. Still, he rounded off with a flourish. I did not break the law, period, and started making his way to the exit. The Biden comms team must have been breathing a huge sigh of relief at that point until... Someone mentioned uh, aid or the uh, hostages in uh, Gaza. And it said, Imagine to their dismay, keep walking, don't turn around. Oh my God, he's going back. So Biden halted and turned around, returned to the lectern, unable to resist the question about the hostage negotiations. It was then that having protested his memory being bad, saying it's all good and his age is not an issue, Biden then mistakenly referred to Egypt's leader, Abdel Fattah al-Sisi, as the president of Mexico. This followed his assertions that in recent days he met with Francois Mitterrand of France and Helmut Kohl of Germany 
both of which have long been dead. It's still only February, you guys. It's like the longest two months of my life. You may be asking why the press has decided to actually hold the president accountable, and the answer would be simple. He has exhausted his viability, his usefulness. For a moment, imagine pretending for decades that you're a victim while using that false victimhood as a cudgel, a weapon of guilt, a tool of manipulation, and knowing that the one person who is about to cause you to lose that power is standing in front of you, in your way. The ammunition, though, was provided, as I stated before, by the special counsel report that released yesterday. So we're going to dig into that a little bit. This is regarding Biden's classified documents investigation. Special counsel Robert Hur said he would not be recommending charges against President Biden for his handling of classified documents while out of office, despite finding evidence that Biden willfully retained materials, capping a year-long investigation that loomed over the presidential race so far. He drew a bright line with the case against former Donald, President Donald Trump, who faces a criminal indictment for his handling of classified documents after he left office. Actually, I think he's facing like 70 of those criminal indictments for handling those documents, saying that Trump refused to return his documents and obstructed justice. Trump has pleaded not guilty. I'd like to just take a moment to vehemently point out that Joe Biden was not a president. He was a vice president. The authority to classify and declassify information primarily resides with the president who has broad powers over national security information, but I digress. Nonetheless, throughout the 388-page report, her painted a dim picture of Biden. We conclude that no criminal charges are warranted in this matter, said Hur's report. We would conclude the same even if there was no policy against charging a president. This was despite the fact that the special counsel uncovered evidence that President Biden willfully retained and disclosed classified information after his presidency when he was a private citizen. Ultimately, Hur's office felt that the evidence does not establish that Mr. Biden's guilt guilty beyond a reasonable doubt, and Hur believed that there were numerous reasons why a potential jury could find reasonable doubt at trial, notably that Biden would come across as not only sympathetic, but forgetful and not capable of the willfulness required to convict. Notably, Her believed that at trial, Biden could come across... Oh, I just read that part. I apologize. Must have typed that twice. Um, We've also considered that at trial, Mr. Biden would likely present himself to a jury as he did during our interview of him. As a sympathetic, well-meaning, elderly man with a poor memory, the report said, it would be difficult to convince a jury that they should convict him. By then, a former president well into his 80s of a serious felony that requires a mental state of willfulness? Was the law broken? It's a simple question, yes or no. Do you guys remember Christian Saucer? Or Saucier, I can't remember how you say his last name, but Pepperidge Farm fucking remembers. 
Christian was a former machinist mate in the U.S. Navy. He was court-martialed in 2016 for unauthorized retention of national defense information, a charge that stemmed from his taking and then retaining photographs of classified areas inside the USS Alexandria, a nuclear attack submarine, on which he was stationed in 2009. The photos were considered classified as they could potentially reveal sensitive information about the submarine's nuclear propulsion system and other classified aspects of its design and capabilities. Saussier argued that he'd taken these photographs as mementos. But the prosecution contended that by taking and retaining these photographs, he had mishandled classified information. He was sentenced to one year in prison, followed by six months in home confinement as part of his three years of supervised release. In 2018, Donald Trump pardoned Saucier, citing his case as an example of someone who had been treated unfairly by the justice system. Takes one to know one, I guess. The report also stated that Mr. Biden's memory was significantly limited, both during his recorded interviews with a ghostwriter in 2017 and in his interview with their office in 2023. The man can't keep his shit together, but he should still be president. Okay, you guys? Don't ask questions. So I listened to the SCOTUS hearing this morning on Donald Trump's name appearing on the Colorado ballot, and I have to give the disclaimer. I am not an attorney, but it really felt like things were not going okay for Colorado. U.S. Supreme Court justices appeared to doubt the state's authority to disqualify Donald Trump from holding public office after the former president challenged a landmark court ruling from Colorado's highest court, which found him ineligible for the presidency due to his actions surrounding January 6th. A historic two-hour hearing at the nation's highest court on Thursday heard oral arguments in a case that could determine whether the leading candidate for the Republican Party's nomination for president can remain on ballots in primary elections. Last year, justices on Colorado's Supreme Court disqualified Mr. Trump under the scope of Section 3 of the 14th Amendment, which holds that, quote, no person can hold any office, civil or military, under the United States if they engaged in insurrection or rebellion against the same, which he did not do, he has not been charged with, and he hasn't been convicted of. But I, I, again, I digress. Both conservative and liberal justices on the nine-member Supreme Court on Thursday appeared to cast doubt on the ability of individual states to disqualify federal candidates without permission from Congress. When Katanji Jackson-Brown is going out of her way to yell at you, about a state being able to choose who can run for president federally, you've probably messed up like real bad. The justices will issue their decision in Trump v. Anderson at a later date. You know what else happened yesterday while everyone was distracted by the Trump-Biden classified document stuff and Tucker's Putin interview? Well, the Senate voted Thursday to advance a $95 billion foreign aid package for Ukraine and Israel. I'm just here to remind you 
that if you go back and listen to Monday's episode of Everything Yesterday This Morning, I talked about the uh, border bill that they were looking at. And the original proposal for Ukraine and Israel was $64 billion. So somehow we've magically added $31 billion to those two countries. The 67 to 32 vote came after hours of deliberation among Senate Republicans who tanked a vote Wednesday to pass the foreign aid along with a bipartisan border security deal. But after that package failed, some Senate Republicans said they could only support the standalone foreign aid with assurances they would have the chance to add new border provisions and others raise concerns with the distribution of aid. Eventually, 17 Republicans joined with Democrats to advance the aid on its own, though additional changes are expected. Uh, This is a good first step. This bill is essential for our national security. (laughs) For the security of our friends in Ukraine, in Israel, for humanitarian aid, for innocent civilians in Gaza and Taiwan. Majority Leader Chuck Schumer said on the Senate floor on Thursday, I'm going to have to invent a time machine so I can go back Get Brutus, the anti-federalist who was thought to be Robert Yates, come today and slap the shit out of Chuck Schumer. Like, bro, let me explain some things to you. This is not what you should be doing right now. Okay, that is your Friday edition of Everything Yesterday This Morning. I didn't go as long as I thought I was going to, but um, we are doing Liberty Happy Hour this evening Keep a lookout on my Twitter timeline for the start time. My daughter still has gymnastics practice tonight, but traditionally it ends a little bit earlier. So I'm going to try to uh, start a little bit earlier tomorrow. So with all of that being said, please don't forget to go check out that link in the show description for Palmetto State Armory. And otherwise, you guys take care. Have a great weekend. I will see you guys on Monday. If you like today's show, be sure to subscribe and turn on notifications so you never miss an episode. Also, please don't forget to check out shouseinthehouse.com and never forget that free men do not need permission from any government. Have a great day.